You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, Episode 12. In today's Tidbit Tuesday, I answer a few listener questions about one, getting sharp images, and two, my thoughts on location sharing. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Are you the sort of photographer who likes to create images that depict the landscape in a natural way that's in line with what existed at the time of capture, rather than use post-processing techniques to create a whole new scene that didn't exist naturally? If so, then the Natural Landscape Photography Awards is a competition designed for you, and it is now open for entries until September 1st, 2021. You can learn more about their submission requirements and what sort of post-processing methods are accepted read about the amazing judges they have and other important information at naturallandscapeawards.com. And they are kindly offering you as a listener of the podcast 15% off your entry fee when you use the discount code OPS15 for Outdoor Photography School 15 at checkout. So again, for 15% off your submission to the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, enter the code OPS15 at Check out. Hey everyone, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. Today, we are talking about nailing focus in your landscape or nature images and a bit about location sharing as well. But before we dive in, I wanted to share a quick comment that a fellow listener submitted in response to a question we had in episode 10 regarding image storage, editing, and sharing for the non-professional. Hi, Brenda. It's Egidio in Austin, Texas. I had one recommendation for backup solution for the other listener, and that was regarding Amazon Photos. If the person already has Amazon Prime, photos can be backed up automatically and unlimited. Amazon includes free photo storage in original quality size. Now, if you add videos to that storage, there is a limit, but they also have a plan that you can pay extra to store your videos. But for photography, it's a great resource if you already are a Prime member. Thanks again for a great podcast. Take care. Thank you, Egidio, for taking the time to share that helpful tip with us all. I really appreciate it. And we'll actually hear a question from Egidio later in today's episode. As you know, I love hearing from you. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on the podcast, just click the link in today's episode description or go to outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash podcast and click the button to record your question. This week's first listener question comes from Mary. Hello, Brenda. I would like to know how to create tack-sharp photos. Thank you. Thank you, Mary, for this question. In addition to understanding exposure and composition, understanding how to get sharp images is one of the more important aspects of improving one's photography. 
First off, it's important to understand that it's nearly impossible to get your entire image to be tack sharp. There's only one point in the image that could be actually tack sharp, and that is the focal point or the point at which you place your focus. Everything else in the image only has the potential of being quote unquote acceptably sharp. Acceptably sharp basically means the sharpest focus we can achieve for a given scene within the limitations of the equipment we're using. So our our camera sensor, the lens, whether or not we're using filters and so forth, and any challenges in the scene itself. What the human eye perceives as sharp in a printed image viewed at a certain distance is what's considered acceptably sharp. So you can think of it sort of like the foreground and the background of an image being equally sharp and equally unsharp so that no one area of the image is more or less sharp than another area. So there are many things that can affect focus and and getting an acceptably sharp image, but there are four steps that I think play the most significant role in nailing focus, and they are one, adjusting the diopter, two, using the correct focus mode and autofocus area for the scene or subject, three, putting your focus point in the correct place, and four, using an appropriate shutter speed. So let's now go over each of these in a little more detail. So step one, adjusting the diopter. So for those of you who don't know, the diopter is that little tiny plus minus knob near the viewfinder on your camera. And it basically adjusts the focus of the viewfinder to match your eyesight so that when you think you are in focus based on what you see through the viewfinder, you are. To adjust it is easy. You just turn on your camera so that you see the LCD text and icons in the viewfinder and then adjust the knob until the edges of the text and icons are sharp. On some cameras, you actually pull the diopter out to adjust it, and on others, you may need to remove the eye cup piece that's around the viewfinder first. And it can be easy to accidentally move the diopter when taking your camera in and out of your bag or whatnot, so it's a good practice to readjust it every once in a while especially if you start to notice that your images are getting soft and you don't have another good reason for that. So step number two is to use the correct focus mode and autofocus area. So if you're using autofocus, you'll want to be sure to use the correct focus mode, which is sometimes also called focus operation, and the appropriate autofocus area for your scene or subject. So for example, for moving subjects, you would be better off using autofocus continuous mode, which is called AFC in Nikon and Sony and AI Servo in Canon, rather than autofocus single mode, which is called AFS in Nikon and Sony and one shot in Canon, because continuous autofocus locks on your moving subject and readjusts focus as necessary. Or another example would be using a broad or wide autofocus area where the camera is taking an average of different points in the scene to decide where to focus rather than focusing on just a single point. Now, each camera manufacturer has its own language around these autofocus modes and area settings. So it's best to consult your manual to make sure your autofocus settings are set up the way you intend them to be for the type of photography you're doing. Okay, step number three is putting your focus point in the correct spot. So where you focus in the scene will determine where your depth of field will be. 
And the depth of field is the area between two points in a scene where everything within that area is acceptably sharp. And there are other factors that determine the size of the depth of field, meaning whether it's a shallow or deep depth of field, such as aperture, focal length, sensor size, and the distance between the camera and the subject. But it's the focal point that determines where that depth of field will be in a scene. So you want to be sure that your subject or whatever it is that you want in focus is within the depth of field. For landscape images, it's common to want as much of the scene as possible in focus. And to do that, you put your focal point at what's called the hyperfocal distance. The hyperfocal distance is the distance between your camera and a point in the scene at which everything from half that distance out to infinity will be acceptably sharp. So focusing at the hyperfocal distance will give you the maximum depth of field. So for example, if the hyperfocal distance is at 10 feet, then everything from 5 feet out to infinity will be acceptably sharp if you focus at the hyperfocal distance of 10 feet. Now, if you're not yet familiar with the concepts of depth of field, finding and using the hyperfocal distance and how to measure it, I will put a bunch of resources in the show notes for you to learn more, including my free Hyperfocal Distance Made Easy ebook, one of my YouTube videos about focusing and landscape photography using the hyperfocal distance, and also an article about measuring the hyperfocal distance while in the field so you know actually where to focus. And I'll put links to all of these in the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode 12. Okay, and step number four is using an appropriate shutter speed. So using a shutter speed that is slightly too slow to perfectly freeze motion might be one of the more common culprits for soft images. At least that's been the case in my own photography. And it's not just our subject's motion that we need to take into consideration, but also anything that can affect our camera's motion. So things that can affect camera motion include hand-holding, wind, especially when using a lot longer focal length lens, sometimes simply depressing the shutter button. And in DSLRs, the mirror snapping up and down when the shutter is opened can also introduce some vibration. So let me give you some tips on how to deal with these camera movement issues. For one, if you have the option of using a tripod, then that will be more stable than hand-holding and slower shutter speeds will generally be more forgiving depending on your subject. Second, if you are hand-holding, then one trick is to not use shutter speeds that are slower than the focal length you're using. For example, if you're shooting at 200 millimeters, then use shutter speeds of 1 200th of a second or faster. And you may need to test this out to see how things work in your hands with your camera setup. Okay, when you're using a tripod, another option is to weigh your tripod down with your camera bag or a bag of rocks, sand or dirt or whatever you have. And most tripods come with a little hook underneath the center column just for this purpose. Another thing to consider is removing your camera strap when you're working with a tripod in the wind because it can also introduce slight camera movement. Using a shutter release cable or remote or using the built-in self-timer to delay the release of the shutter so that the camera has a moment to sort of settle down before the shutter is opened is another way to reduce camera shake. Alternatively, if your camera has an electronic shutter option, 
then you can opt for that to reduce any vibration caused by the shutter curtain opening and closing. And if you use a DSLR camera, you can also try mirror lockup to stop the mirror from flapping up and down every time you press the shutter. And my final tip for reducing camera movement brings us to our next listener question. So let's take a quick listen. Hi, Brenda. Dave King here. Great podcast. I'm really enjoying the, uh, the new show that you're doing. It's really a lot of good information there. Um, I have a question about the steady shot feature on cameras and lenses. Um, I've heard that when shooting on a tripod that it's best to turn off the steady shot feature to obtain the sharpest images. I tried this recently when shooting the supermoon and my results were actually not so good. So I wonder, do you know if there's any proven examples supporting that it's best to turn off steady shot when you're using a tripod? And uh, I'm curious, what, what do you do? Do you turn it off? Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, David, for this question. It's a good one, and I'm sorry to hear that you had some issues with photographing the supermoon. So what David is referring to is a technology known as image stabilization, and different manufacturers have different names for it, of course. So you may have seen it called optical image stabilization, vibration reduction, optical steady shot, and other names. But generally, the technologies are all similar. For simplicity, I'll just refer to it as image stabilization. So there are two types of image stabilization. Optical image stabilization, which is built into the lens and was first developed by Canon and Nikon. And in-body image stabilization, which was developed later by Sony and called SteadyShot. And now Canon and Nikon with their new mirrorless cameras also have in-body stabilization as well. Basically, the way image stabilization works is by counteracting any potential vibration by moving either elements in the lens for optical image stabilization or moving the camera sensor for in-body stabilization. As David said in his question, it's often recommended that we turn off image stabilization while using a tripod. And this has actually been the recommendation from the camera and lens manufacturers themselves. Now, some lenses can detect when the camera is on a tripod, but at this point, most do not. Normally, with optical image stabilization, the elements that move around inside the lens to compensate for vibration are locked in place when the IS or image stabilization is turned off. And when you turn IS on, now the elements sort of float around at the ready to respond to any vibrations. However, when there is no vibration or when it's below the level of detection of the system, then sometimes the camera's own movement resulting from normal operations may be enough to trigger the image stabilization response. So the only way to ensure against this sort of feedback loop is to turn IS off on your lens and lock those elements in place while using a tripod. So what about in-body stabilization, such as the Sony SteadyShot and the new Canon and Nikon mirrorless cameras? Well, the camera sensors also respond to vibrations in a similar way where the sensor is sort of suspended and at the ready to respond to vibrations. And they're only locked into place when the image stabilization is turned off. Now, some cameras can actually detect when they're on a tripod and will turn off image stabilization automatically. So you should check both your camera and lens manuals 
to see if your gear has the ability to know when you are using a tripod or not. David asked what I do, and I photograph with Nikon gear, and their terminology is called vibration reduction. And I recently got the Z7 mirrorless camera, which has in-body vibration reduction, and my Z lenses do not. Nikon recommends that vibration reduction is turned off when using a tripod. Now that said, I have run some tests and I actually don't see a difference between having it on or off when using a tripod, but I do see a difference with vibration reduction uh, when I'm hand-holding. It definitely improves the image. On the other hand, before I went mirrorless, I had a Nikon D810, which does not have in-body stabilization, whereas my lenses did have vibration reduction, and I always did try to remember to turn it off when using a tripod because I did see a measurable difference in my images. Now back to David's example, when he turned off steady shot, which is Sony's term, while photographing the supermoon on a tripod, he got bad results. And why uh, this happened, I'm not entirely sure. As we've already discussed in this episode, there are several things that could have contributed to a lack of sharpness that are not actually related to steady shot or image stabilization. For example, if David was using a telephoto lens to really zoom in to the moon, it's possible that a faster shutter speed would have corrected the issue because the moon appears to move across the frame more quickly than at a wider focal length lens. And it may simply be the moon's movement that caused it to be slightly out of focus. What I would recommend to David is to run a series of tests with whatever lens he was using to photograph the moon and uh, photograph a printed grid at a set distance. So take a series of test shots with and without steady shot and with and without a tripod and compare the results. This would help him determine whether he should or should not turn off steady shot while using a tripod with that particular camera and lens combination. And I found a helpful YouTube video from Mark Gaylor that goes into way more details about Sony's steady shot and how and when to use it. So I will go ahead and link that in the show notes. Okay, now let's listen to our last listener question for this week. Hi, Brenda. This is Egidio in Austin, Texas. I have just finished listening to your latest podcast with Rob Hirsch. And once again, you bring to the forefront the issues of conservation and nature stewardship, which are important to me. I've experienced places such as Antelope Canyon and the Horseshoe, when we were the only people around at the time that we visited them some 14 years ago. I hear about how things have changed since then. So here's my question. How do you deal with people who insist on asking where you shot some photos in some sensitive areas? Does it matter if they are supporters of conservation and environmentally conscious organizations? I'd like to hear your feedback. Thanks for these provocative and informative podcasts. They are great. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you, Egidio, for this thoughtful question and for your kind comments. I really appreciate it, and I'm so glad that you are enjoying the show. I think the question of sharing locations or not is an important one that we all should probably spend a little time figuring out for ourselves and what considerations we want to take into account when making this decision. As Egidio pointed out, it's become quite obvious these days that the combination of social media and the pervasiveness of digital photography has negatively impacted natural environments that are not suited for extensive human use. 
And as landscape and nature photographers, many of us want our images to have an impact. But these days, we also need to realize that our images may contribute to the unintended consequence of destroying a place that we connected with and photographed. When I launched the Outdoor Photography School website in 2019, I created the OPS Manifesto as a statement of core values that I hoped our community of outdoor photographers would embrace, or at least I hope would get people to stop and think about their actions in the field. And in the manifesto, I don't have a specific statement about location sharing, but it does say to put nature first and to respect all species and ecosystems. And I believe to uphold these values, discretion should then be used when sharing locations, especially those that are sensitive or have the potential of being compromised by overuse. Myself and many of the guests we've already had on the podcast are members of the Nature First Photography Alliance, and one of their core principles is to use, quote, discretion when sharing locations, unquote. And I'll put links in the show notes to both the OPS Manifesto, which you can download if you'd like, and also to the Nature First Alliance website, where you can become a member for free. So I've definitely committed to the practice of limiting location information when I post images. And I actually don't even have GPS data turned on in my camera. So as far as I can tell, it's not even included in the metadata of the image files. If the image I'm sharing is from a location that has already been modified to accommodate human activity, then I am comfortable sharing that location. And if it hasn't been, then I will just provide a general area like Vermont or the Green Mountains of Vermont, for example, without giving a specific spot. Now, if someone asks me for location information of a sensitive place, then I first try to understand their motivations behind wanting to find it and whether or not they would protect it in a similar way. So keep in mind that once you've shared a location with someone, even someone who you think would use it responsibly, you no longer have control how they might then share it with the next person who might then share it with the next person and so forth. So when trying to decide whether to share a location or not, I encourage listeners to ask yourself the following question. What do I value more? the natural world I'm inspired to photograph at this location, or the recognition of others, whether that's a genuine appreciation for the shared information or a like or follow on Instagram. And honestly, I think the internal debate can really be as simple as that. And if you would like to share your thoughts on this topic or anything else we talked about today, feel free to leave a comment at the bottom of the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode 12. And, you know, keep it respectful to those with whom you may not agree. All right. Thanks so much for listening to this Tidbit Tuesday and for your submitted questions. As always, I appreciate you tuning in and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. You can find all the links and other information mentioned today at the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode 12. Don't forget to check out the Natural Landscape Photography Awards at naturallandscapeawards.com and use the discount code OPS15 to get 15% off your submission. 
And I'll be back here next week with a great interview with one of my favorite photographers, Sarah Marino, to talk about her approaches to composition and creativity. So until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.